The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello. Welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 230. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and also find us on YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and give us a thumbs up. And if you ring the bell on YouTube, you will get notified every time we put up a new video. And I can tell you we put up a new video every Thursday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So today, like most every other day, we have an interview. Today's interview is with a gentleman named John Mabry. John's story of addiction begins where a lot of people's end. At age 22, he was involved in a horrific car accident that claimed his right leg as well as the life of his friend. This led to addiction, and his story is all about coming out of addiction, becoming a triathlete, yes, you heard that right, a triathlete, and getting his family back and turning his life completely around. So without further ado, let's talk to John Mabry. John Mabry, is it Mabry? Yes, it is. Okay, John Mabry, thank you so much for being willing to be on our podcast today and share your story. Stories such as yours are so inspirational, even though I haven't heard the whole thing yet, I know because I read about you, but um, the, the, the hope is that a story like yours gives others hope. So thank you for being willing to share. Absolutely. My pleasure. That's, that's what it's all about. Absolutely. So it, it, well, and just to say it is what it's all about, but there are some who don't want to share their story and I get it and I understand it. Sure. Sure. But the value of a, a former addict sharing what they went through, I think I cannot stress that enough. It's huge. So so take us back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And bring us forward from there. Yeah, so uh, I was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, um, into an upper middle class family and had uh, was surrounded by a lot of love, a lot of support. Um, you know, <clears throat> pretty much everything I, I need or not pretty much everything I needed was provided for me and, and most of what I wanted or I had to work to, or, <clears throat> or I was encouraged to work to get what I wanted. So, you know, the... Uh, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, tennis shoes that came out at the time. My parents were like, all right, you want some of those nice shoes? You pay for half of them. So, <laughs> so it wasn't all just handed to me, but, um, but I, I did have a, a relatively easy childhood. And now uh, I usually show this later on in the story, but I'll just go ahead and put it out there now, you know, childhood trauma and there's big T traumas, you know, major, you know, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, uh, caught in a hurricane, you know, natural disaster. Those are, those are, you know, absolutely traumas. And then there's those smaller T traumas that a lot of people don't pay attention to and don't realize that that can uh, really set the tone for the rest of your life and how you deal with things. <clears throat> and so for me, after going through multiple rounds of treatment later on in my life, again, I went to a trauma therapist and she came back and she said, look, I don't care about these major traumas that you went through in your young adulthood. She goes, what I care about is what happened to you as a kid. And I was like, what are you talking about lady? Like, and this is a phone consultation. I didn't have any seen her in person yet. This was just a, let's just get, get to know you over the phone and then we'll bring you in. And I'd been to multiple treatment centers and nobody ever asked me what happened to me as a child. And I said, nothing. Like she, I said, I had a great childhood. She goes, I'm sure you did, but what happened? I was like, man, the only thing I'm thinking of is I had some ear surgeries as a kid. And, but that wasn't a big deal. It was a long time ago. And you know, it wasn't a big deal. And she goes, no, 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 no. Tell me a little bit more about that. And I said, well, I had six ear surgeries as a child. 
uh, from probably about age six to 14. Um, had a transplanted eardrum. I had to be flown out of state uh, to have somebody else's eardrum put in my head. And then the three, three bones in my left ear are prosthetic bones. And she goes, interesting. So when you come in, we're going to start with that. Because I guarantee you that's where your problem started. I guarantee it. And I was like, what? You know, it opened up a whole new world for me of, you know, adverse childhood experiences. And, um, and, and are- you know, John, I would say just my own opinion, that's a big T trauma. Yes. Oh, that, yeah. it you was. know, I understand, you know, sexual abuse and that's obviously horrific, but going through that many operations as a young child, that's a big deal. You have not only the pain involved and the trauma involved, you have the drugs that they have to use. You can't get surgeries like that without drugs. So I, I'm, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. That. I'm going to say that's big T. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. No, I, I agree. I agree. It was big T. You know, so what came out of that, we did what's called a graphic narrative. And, and I've never seen the therapist do this before. She's trauma specific. I mean, this is a lady that works with uh, Jason Aldean and his team. As soon as they went through the, uh, the Mandalay Bay incident where the shooting the shooter at Mandalay Bay at Jason Aldean's concert there in Las Vegas. She traveled with their team. I mean, so this lady's like trauma specific and she still, I think still works with them if I'm not mistaken. But um, so yeah, we did what's called a graphic narrative. And so she sat me down when I went in there and gave me a piece of paper, blank pieces of paper and crayons. I'm going, what, you know, I've got a master's degree in counseling. I've, you know, I've done all this stuff in my life. And here I am sitting in this, you know, cold red brick, you know, office building with this crayons and, paper. And I'm like, this is what my life's been reduced to. But what came out of that is I started drawing what I remember from my childhood. And there was always this fear, this, uh, uh, I'm not good enough. I'm broken. I'm inherent. Something's inherently wrong with me. That's unfixable that I'm so bad that they had to put somebody else's body part in my head. And, and the doctor is probing into my, you know, probing into my brain. It was extremely traumatic. Well, and, just, uh, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. There's something wrong. And obviously it's not going away because I keep having to get surgeries to fix it. It's, it can be, I would say introverting or cause a lot of introspection that, you know, you're not going to necessarily talk to your friends about. No, it was funny as I covered it up. So I told her, I said, uh, so in my senior year in high school at senior prom, I was named most outgoing, most school spirited, best personality and class clown. And she goes, well, that's interesting because over here you're, you're acting like this, but you're telling me you're feeling insecure, not good enough, broken. And so it was this overcompensation for the internal feelings. I was, I I didn't even know that I had, but I just, it it came out in this over the top. I'm going to make you like me because I don't like myself. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not content with who I am because there's, there's this internal angst that's always going on underneath the skin. So I'm going to cover it up by being funny and, and, uh, and being over the top, you know, Mr. Personality. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, group. Great childhood for the most part, except for the ear surgeries. And I, you know, I'm glad that, they, that that came out. And I encourage people to, you know, go talk with somebody if they have any kind of internal. If in and, and they're called adverse childhood experiences. If you wanted to Google, there's a, a ten questionnaire, ten question questionnaire that um, the more adverse childhood experiences you have, the more likely you are to uh, struggle with addiction, obesity, diabetes, all these other, you know, secondary health issues. Um, so I encourage people to look up adverse childhood experiences, and it can be something as simple as. I just didn't feel safe in my home. I didn't feel loved. I, I, there was times when I went to school, my parents didn't pick me up on time and over and over and over, you got this message that was not intentional, but you got this message that you're not important or you're not good enough. And you know, John, I, I agree with that. You know, we, we have people who come on the podcast who maintain that addiction is a brain disease and that it's genetic. Um, I, I never, 
you know, like I don't say, well, that's just not true because obviously there's, you know, there's a lot of research that's been done, but what we've always felt here on the podcast is that drugs are a solution. They're not the problem. And so the problem can definitely be what you're talking about. And I think, you know, so often it is, it is some kind of adverse situation or adverse incident that happened, you know, in, in young adulthood or childhood. I agree with you on that. Yep. Yep. And I, w- I love the point that you're making there. That's not just a brain disease. Um, I would love to speak with that a little bit more of the research that I've seen and the, and the readings that I've done. Um, that's kind of the message. So I am putting myself out there as a, as a professional public speaker here very soon. Um, I've done it. A f- I did it a few years ago working for a treatment center, but now I'm about to go out on my own. They're working on my website right now. My publicist is, is kind of, we're, we're gearing up to, um, to be able to go share my story, you know, nationally uh, out with audiences. And so there's a couple of main points that, that um, I would love to talk about in a little bit once we cover the rest of my story, I guess. Absolutely. So, so, so ended up, yeah, graduating high school and I was kind of a, I was kind of riding high cause I was, you know, I felt like I was the guy, you know, one of the guys on campus that was, uh, that was liked and, and um, valued, I guess. <clears throat> and so I ended up going to Baylor university for my undergrad in communications and um, had a great experience in college. I, I loved, um, the five years, I squeezed four years into five uh, there, but, um, and I joined fraternity and I got into the heavy drinking. So that's where it kind of started, but I was doing what everybody else was doing. Life was manageable. Um, I was making grades. I was, you know, working um, a couple of years through school. So by my senior year, I, what happened is I'd been on this trajectory of doing really great stuff. Life was exactly where I wanted it to be. So my senior year, I had secured a full ride scholarship doing video work for the athletic teams. And so I was, I got the same scholarship the football players got. And I was, I was filming football practices and games and baseball games, basketball games. And so I had, yeah, full ride scholarship. I had a, I had a monthly stipend. I was getting paid. I books and fees were paid for meal plan classes. Everything was looking great there. I was social chair of my fraternity. So I was really great at going out and uh, creating events with sororities, you know, and then I was dating a cheerleader, one of the Baylor cheerleaders who was uh, also our fraternity uh, sweetheart. And so I had set up senior year in, in March for spring break, set up a cruise out of New Orleans. So we all go about 35 of us go on this cruise out of the booze cruise to that was March 2000. And we go on this great cruise. Everybody's having a great time. And we're having we're coming back from that cruise. And that's when everything changed. So nobody was drinking or driving. It was a beautiful day out. We were coming out of, we'd been through, passed through Houston and we were driving back to Waco and we were on I-40 about, um, I don't know, an hour or so northwest of, uh, of Houston. And we're in a friend's SUV and the right rear tire, the tread separated off the tire. And if you remember, this was actually one of the Firestone Ford Explorer rollovers back in 2000 when they recalled millions of Firestone tires. We were, uh, this was before they announced that there was, that they knew about it, that they knew this was happening. So we were one of the victims prior to this being known to the public. So tire, right rear tire blows out and the car just violently starts shaking. Just And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, no, 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 no. This isn't about to happen. And it happens. As soon as we kind of drifted toward the median, as soon as we hit the grass, we did a 180 and then just started rolling. Uh, witness reports say we rolled between six and 12 times. Oh my God. Through the median, across the other side of the interstate, missing oncoming traffic and into a field. Car comes to a stop, uh, upside down. Were you conscious. driving, John? Were you driving? No, I was a backseat okay. passenger. Okay. There was four of us in the car, and we all had our seatbelts on. Thank goodness. Otherwise, 
we would have been, I've seen um, recreations of these accidents. And if people weren't wearing their seatbelts, they're immediately ejected out of the car. So luckily we all had our seatbelts on. <clears throat> so we come to a stop and I'm thinking, you know what happens in the movies when a car rolls like 10 times, it blows up, you know? So I'm thinking it's gonna blow up, it's gonna blow up, it's gonna blow up. So I undid my seatbelt, I fell, and I positioned myself on the edge of the windowsill, on the window and to get out. And I looked down and my, my right foot, the ankle had been severed in half. And so I was essentially standing on my shin and my foot was wrapped around. I could see the bottom of my foot. And I just throw myself out of the car. I crawl out as quick as I can. I look back and all, all three of my friends are still in the car. And I'm thinking, man, if this thing blows up and I'm sitting here not doing anything, like I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So I said, I'm going in. If it blows up, I don't care. So I crawl back in. I got, uh, I got a friend out. And my two friends up front were, um, Spence was tending to Ashley. Ashley uh, was the driver and she was pinned in unconscious, couldn't move. So the first responders that came on the scene, they had to use the jaws of life to cut her out and they're pulling her from the car and her, she had a lot of head trauma. Um, unfortunately, they landed a helicopter on the side of the interstate. I mean, this is stuff you see in the movies, you know, car rolling, things going to blow up, helicopter on the side of the interstate. I mean, this is like, battle scene, you know, like I felt like I was in Iraq, you know, kind of thing. And they, uh, they take Ashley off in the helicopter and unfortunately she passed before they could get her to the hospital. Um, and so always, her name is Ashley Furman. She was just 19 years old and a beautiful soul. And she was just, uh, unfortunately taken, taken too soon. I'm sorry. But, uh, I, so I ended up long story short, I had, uh, 14 surgeries that year. I was under anesthetic 14 times for various, uh, nerve blocks and operations, trying to just piece my foot back together. And infections just kept coming back because there was so much uh, gravel and grass and dirt, you know, debris from the scene of the accident. Cause I crawled out, and I crawled back in, I crawled out again. So I just picked up all this debris and it was just, it, the infections just, we can never really get hold of it. So after a year and two weeks after the accident, I had decided to go and amputate my leg. I mean, it was in a lot of pain. I would, I would, um, I had to move home. So I moved from, Mr. Social Chair in the fraternity, you know, sweetheart, girlfriend, cheerleader, working, had a great job and grades were great to moving back home with my parents. And, you know, one of the biggest causes, real causes of addiction is disconnection. And so, and there's many forms of disconnection. We can talk about that in a little bit, but for me, it was, you know, disconnected from one from myself uh, being just completely traumatized inside from, from seeing all that. And then being disconnected from my friends, being disconnected from meaningful work, from, um, you know, the, uh, hopeful and secure future is another one that, that we talk about is I just didn't know what my future held. And it was so up and down that year. It was just one thing after another, after another, I'd rather just cut the thing off and move on where I knew what, what to expect as opposed to the unexpected. I, I'd go in for a doctor appointment. Oh, we need to take you in for another surgery. So here we go. So the mistake I made was that I thought just cutting the problem off, cutting the physical problem off. The physical problem was my painful leg. Well, let me just cut that off and everything will be fine. Mm. So, right. And so I didn't deal with the internal stuff. You don't deal with the emotional turmoil. It doesn't matter what happens on the physical side. I've learned in my experience. It's still, uh, I still had all that angst and fear and terror, terror. I mean, absolute terror that I was going to die you know, and so I cut the leg off thinking I was going to be fine. But uh, what I did is I just replaced, um, I just added the, the pain pills and the alcohol started to progress. 
Can I ask you, John, where, where it's amputated, above or below the knee? Oh, or? below the knee, yeah. Okay. Yeah, below the knee. So luckily, yeah, if you're going to lose a limb, do it uh, below the knee, not okay. an arm, so a lot harder to replace because the dexterity in the fingers and they're harder to fit on. Okay. Above the knee, it's harder to fit a prosthetic on. Um, yeah. But you can use a prosthetic. Yeah, so here's okay. my prosthetic. I'll oh, okay, okay. Slip it off for you real quick. I, so. Yep, I was just curious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, just one, yeah. Okay, so now you're compensating... Yeah, so I go back to school, graduate six weeks later after my amputation, uh, walk the stage on a temporary prosthetic to show everybody I'm fine and I got this. And I was just loaded loaded up on pain pills and had been drinking like crazy leading up to that. I mean, it was not healthy. <clears throat> but you go, and and the day before I graduated, I signed um, a settlement for uh, several million dollars uh, for the car accident for the Firestone Ford Explorer deal. So you talk about life changes, leg amputated, graduate college, and you sign a settlement at age 23 years old, and they say, go out to the real world and go do your thing. I was terrified. I was terrified, man. I'll tell you what. Uh, I wish I would have had the, the wherewithal to just slow down, to just, okay, stop. Let, let me just, my life is out of control, or it's going to continue to get worse if I don't just stop and deal with what's really going on underneath the surface. So I wish people could hear that message. If there's something that you're really struggling with these days, just if you got to just slow down. Don't go with the, 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 the pace of the rest of the world and just keep going and thinking that everything's going to be fine. If you don't deal, if you don't pull the, pull the weed out at the root, it's just going to keep growing back, you know? Yeah. So I ended up uh, moving to Dallas for a year at a job, but I knew I felt I wanted to go help other people through my, through all the people that helped me through, you know, my year of surgeries and things. So I ended up um, moving out to San Diego and started working on a master's in counseling at San Diego state. And although it was a, a noble, uh, field to go into. I never really saw myself as a counselor, like sit down and let's, you know, lay down on my couch and let's talk. I just felt like it was kind of part of my personal journey. And um, what I did is I transferred all the stuff, I, the attention I should have been putting on myself to work through my own stuff. And I put that on other people. Or I, let me help you with your problem. Cause I, I don't want to, I don't want to work on me and my problem. That's too much work. That, that takes too much effort. So let me just talk with you about your problems. So I learned how to, you know, listen and, and, you know, be empathetic toward other people's issues, but I, I didn't listen to myself. So I had, uh, and you were still doing drugs. Yes. So then it progressed to Adderall. Uh, you know, I couldn't focus. So it was part of, I was undiagnosed with PTSD for a decade. Mm. And, you know, again, you don't have to go through the war in Iraq to have PTSD. It can be, you know, uh, any number of things. Yep. And so, and, and having PTSD has a whole set of symptoms and needs to be treated. And those weren't treated. And so I was covering it up with, so then I couldn't focus. So that's one of the things Well, I couldn't focus because I was just kind of out of it. Um, so I got on Adderall and I started abusing that. Um, and I, so what I would do is I would bounce from one substance to the other. I would get the pain pills. I would take all those really quickly and I'd run out. So then I'm on Adderall. I take those real quickly. I'd run out. Then I'm on alcohol, you know, supplement that with some marijuana, being out in Southern California. So it was just this like revolving cycle of craziness. And I'd be up and down and up and down. But nobody really knew it until I got married. I married a girl I knew at Baylor. She moved out um, after my second year of grad school. I had one year left. And it took her about six months to realize something's not right. Because we dated and, and were engaged in two different states for two years. Mm-hmm. And when she moved in, she was like, wait a minute. You know, we were just seeing each other on weekends and short, short trips. Easy to hide it on little temporary visits. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so... Although, but we still didn't, we weren't educated and didn't know about addiction. So we just went on about life and it just continued to progressively kind of get deeper and deeper into the sickness. 
And I, I'm graduating grad school in 2005. And I got a call from my cousin, who's an actor. And he calls me up and says, hey, look, I'm going to be in this television show on FX. It's based on the war in Iraq. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, the lead character. It's the biggest role I've had to date. Could you help me take me through what you went through in your car accident? Because I'm going to lose my leg in this roadside bomb in Iraq. So I said, absolutely. I can, I can take you through what I went through. And one thing led to another. They ended up hiring me on for his body double. Oh, and yeah. So we, cool. have, we have a similar look and build. And so, cause I said, what are they going to do for your leg shots? And he said, well, I don't know, probably computer. And I said, well, he's in the script. It was written right leg below the knee. So I'm right leg below the knee. They bring me up, uh, check me out one day, the producers and director and we're like, yeah, you're hired on as a technical consultant. So I was like, all right, not knowing what to expect. I go up on set every day for this uh, 13 episode series. And we would do, we would do, you know, camera tricks where we'd slide my leg in on a scene to make it look like it was him. Um, you know, uh, we'd have him trying to run and he wanted to get back to Iraq and get back to fighting. And so he, he's practicing running on a, on a track. And so we would have me doing the falls and, you know, falling onto the mats and getting bruised up. And I was like, man, this, this stunt stuff is like a real deal. Like this isn't, this isn't a joke. Like, you can really beat your body up. So, uh, you know, I've, I went from, College, everything was great to boom, everything got taken away. And now I'm coming back up. I'm building, building back up. The ego is getting built up. I'm thinking I'm, I'm invincible. And next thing you know, I'm in People Magazine and Access Hollywood. And uh, that show ended up just getting canceled after, after one season. So I drug my now ex-wife kicking and screaming up to LA from San Diego and got an agent and started. I got my, had my foot in the door, you know, in, uh, in the industry, you know, using my leg. And so ended up working on, on projects like NCIS and ER and Cold Case and uh, Super Bad. I've got a scene, the, the, the kids, the younger folks would know, uh, I got a short little scene in Super Bad with Jonah Hill where I jog past him and curse at him as I run by. And so, um, man, I thought I was doing pretty good. Made it to the Playboy Mansion with Adam Sandler and Bruce Willis and uh, Emma Stone uh, for a party. And uh, things were going pretty well on the surface. You know, if, if social media was real big back then and Facebook was coming up, but I would have been, look at me, look at me, look at me. And, but again, underneath all that stuff was just stirring and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the unthinkable happened. Um, I got a call that my brother who lived in Beverly Hills didn't show up for work one day and he struggled with addiction as well, uh, as well as mental, mental illness, uh, was diagnosed bipolar. And um, so I drove over to his house and uh, his car was in the driveway. I go up to his room, bedroom door, and the doorknobs, the door's locked. And so I call his cell phone. I could hear the cell phone ringing on the other side of the door and no answer. And knowing that he had addiction issues, I thought, you know, there could be something here. And I wish I would have called for help, but hey, I got this, you know, just my ego. I, I can handle it. And I ended up kicking his bedroom door in splintered, you know, wood splintered everywhere and walked in to find my brother, uh, face down dead from an overdose. Um, he'd been there for three days and that's what addiction does. Addiction wants to isolate us. It wants to keep us from help. It wants to keep us from the light. It wants to keep us from, um, from the love of other people and from ourselves and from a higher power and from God. And what he did is he just isolated and isolated. And we didn't, so coming from an upper middle-class family, we didn't want people to know that we were struggling. You know, we wanted to keep it quiet and just, he was, dude, he was brilliant. He got his MBA from Georgetown and I mean, top of his graduate, top of his class, University of Texas business school. And he was smart. So we're like, well, just figure it out, you know, go, go get sober, but not knowing that he needed real, real help. 
You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I'm so sorry about your brother. I mean, I'm just, I'm super sorry. Did you know that he was addicted at the time? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He had, he had been struggling for years and, um, you know, so he was working in New York city and struggling with cocaine. And he finally told my parents, he finally came out one time and said, look, I'm in over my head. I can't handle this. So moved home with my parents to Texas for a couple of months. And I said, why don't you move out to LA and be closer to me? Not that LA is any better on the drug scene, but it's a slower pace of life than New York. It's, you know, a little more chill, uh, more sun, you know. And so the great thing was for this last two years, we were eight miles apart from each other. I was on the backside of the Hollywood Hills. He was in, in Beverly Hills. And so we got to be close to, you know, he was there for my, my first son's birth and my first father's day with my son and, and things like that. But again, we, uh, we just didn't want anybody to know. And so we just kept it quiet. And so what I tell people is that, that the drugs did not kill my brother. The cocaine did not kill my brother. You know, it's the stigma. It was the stigma that he's weak. Our family's weak. My parents weren't good enough. They did something wrong raising us that we're both struggling actually with addiction, not just him, but both of us. So we didn't want anybody to know. And so we let that stigma, you know, and so after that, I ended up, um, things just got worse, of course, you know. Um, we moved out of LA. I said, let's just get the heck out of LA. But kind of like cutting my leg off and moving on, you know, removing the physical the physical pain of amputating my leg and moving on, you still got to deal with what's going on inside. You're still not confronting the problem. Yeah. yeah. Geographical change as a lot of uh, recover, recovering alcoholics and addicts know doesn't work most of the time. So maybe ge- geographical change uh, to Nashville here where I've lived the last 11 years and I struggled with jobs. I mean, I was, I was drinking at work, drinking on the way to work, drinking on the way home from work, trying to just doing everything I could to cover it up. Um, and my First big wake-up call was uh, getting fired by Dave Ramsey. If anybody knows Dave Ramsey, he's the total money makeover, you know, uh, personal finance guru. Has a you know radio show, gets people out of debt, and as um, it's real hard to get a, it's real hard to get a job in his organization. At, the, at that time, he had seven interview process, and it took over three and a half months. And like I had to go out with a spousal interview. My ex-wife had to come with with my uh, would-be supervisor and his wife. And so what Dave Ramsey says is every time he hires, he hates hiring crazy people because they just, they take away from his goals and mission of his organization. And every time he hires a crazy person, he puts a new level of interviewing in. Well, I got through all seven layers, had everybody fooled. I put on the act, played the actor. 
And I got in and I was drinking at my desk. I was drinking vodka at my desk, calling churches on behalf of his organizations, trying to sell live event tickets and popping pills as well. And so it didn't take too long for them to figure it out. And I got called into his office and somebody that I really looked up to and respected, you know, says, look, you obviously need help and I can't help you in the way that you need help, but I can let you go. So you can go get the help that you need. And so that being said, anybody listening that's had uh, a setback, sometimes those setbacks are there for a reason. Sometimes if something didn't work out for you, it's, there's a reason for it. And it could be a wake up call for you to slow down and say, Hey, you know what I need, I need to ask, reach out for help. So Finally, went to treatment for the first time and I uh, was drinking within probably three days of that 45 mm-hmm. day treatment, you know, went to a high end treatment center out in Arizona and thought if I paid more, I'd get sober quicker and longer, but I didn't fully grasp the, the Alcoholics Anonymous concept, the 12 step concept. I just thought, I thought if I went and got a bunch of uh, therapy and got a bunch of acupuncture and massage and pool volleyball and all these things that just kind of like lift my spirits a little bit, then I would come home and I'd be fixed. But the problem is that all, all a treatment center does is give you tools and they introduce you to education, but it's the individual's responsibility to take those tools and implement them on a daily basis. And a lot of times on an hourly basis. Yep. And it took me five, it's taken me five treatment centers to figure that out. Well, and, <laughs> and, and what, what, what finally was, as we say on the podcast, your point of no return, because that kind of started the ball rolling, but obviously that wasn't enough of a point of no return for you. So, uh, so I ended up uh, getting divorced um, two years ago. And as a result of just ongoing stuff, you know, the ongoing shenanigans. And uh, I had, I had a, co- a good couple of years sobriety a number of years back, and I was working for an addiction treatment center. Um, that had multiple treatment centers around the country. I was hosting their podcast. So here I am, been through multiple rounds of treatment and I'm doing really well. Things are going really well. I'm sober. I'm sharing my message out with other people. I'm hosting a podcast, um, bringing on, you know, uh, high profile folks, uh, you know, and share, I'm interviewing them on their stories. I'm traveling the country. I'm, I'm serving on panel addiction panels at conferences and doing some really great work speaking to colleges and universities. But here's the thing is, so one of the uh, one of the, the big things that I'll be talking about on my public speaking tour is uh, is the unmet psychological needs that we have, and we have uh, physical needs: food, water, shelter. And I got this from uh, from the author Johan Hari, who wrote the book uh, Lost Connections. So this isn't something I came up with to give Johan Hari credit, but in in reading his stuff, he says you know we have physical needs. So if if, you, if I were to take water, food, or shelter away from you. Um, we're going to see symptoms of that. We're going to see a decline in your health. We're going to see a decline in your energy. We're going to see physical, you know, if you're, if you don't have a place to live, you're going to have, you know, you're going to get feel dirty and stinky and we're going to see symptoms of unmet physical needs. Well, then there's the psychological needs of certainty, psychological need of variety and significance of connection, growth and contribution. And so although I was contributing and I was growing, here's the thing is, is I didn't have, I would come home to a spouse that if one person changes in a family unit, if one person is struggling with addiction or mental illness and they change and the, and the other people don't change around them, that, that doesn't serve for a recipe for uh, overall wellness for the entire unit. And so it's kind of like the mobile, like a kid's mobile, you know, swinging above the, the crib. If you hit one, one item on the mobile, you hit the little giraffe the elephant and the, the lion, everything's going to move with it. And so although I was doing great work and I was, uh, had made progress, I was coming home to an environment that, that was very toxic and sick. 
And I had the other person wasn't willing to do work on their trauma. So I had caused trauma on somebody on a, on a loved one, on my ex-wife and I'm not putting blame on her. It was, I mean, it was, I, I drove the marriage into the ground. I'm not saying I didn't, <clears throat> um, but there is, there was a responsibility on her part to also, I didn't cause my traumas, but I had to figure out a way to handle them. And now she's been caused trauma and there was no work being done there. And so it was just, it was not sustainable. Right. And it finally, and it finally collapsed. And I take full responsibility for my part in that. And so I, I had unmet psychological needs, even though I was doing great and had built some time up in sobriety is I didn't have certainty in my marriage. I didn't think it was going to last. And um, I didn't have significance in my marriage. You know, I was, I had no respect. I'd lied so many times and I just didn't feel like it was ever going to get better. And so my point of no return was getting to not even just getting divorced. Cause I relapsed after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was feeling so disconnected, so lonely and so sad inside that I wanted to die. That mm-hmm. I was like, you know, wanting, to, if I just don't wake up tomorrow, that would just be so much easier. And so I'm living in an apartment by myself for the first time. You know, I have minimal access to my children because of my past and COVID hits and, and I was depressed deeper than I'd ever been depressed. And I finally told a friend of mine how bad I was feeling. And he said, John, he said, when you're sober, you sky's the limit, man, you you can accomplish anything you want, but when you're not, and you're not healthy, he goes, I'm afraid. Don't make me show up to your funeral and tell your kids what a great guy you could have been. And it hit me. I mean, just having, it was me sharing with another loved a friend who cared about me, who was in recovery, who I lived in a halfway house with. And he just sat there across the table and just said, do whatever you have to do, man. And so I took a step back and I said, something's not working. And one thing that I could change. So I have been through probably about two dozen different types of therapeutic modalities. I've traveled to Bali and worked with uh, gurus in Bali. I've been trained in transcendental meditation. I mean, I've tried all these things. It was still but don't give up guys. Don't give up. If you try one thing and it's, and it works for a little while, but it does, you know, don't give up. And so that's one thing is I didn't give up and there's always hope if you keep, um, you, I still had power to make changes in my life. And so one of the changes I made was instead of going to, uh, AA Alcoholics Anonymous, I said, you know what? I think I celebrate recovery. I'd heard about for years. And I never really committed to, and that's uh, 12 steps for Christians. It's 12 steps in the church. Um, uh, the same 12 steps as Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's just done with Jesus Christ is a higher power, not a God of your, a general God of your understanding. I, see. And I grew up, I grew up in the church and I, my grandfather was a pastor. And so I got away from that and through all the treatment centers, they always promote AA, AA, AA. So I was yep. doing that, but it was like, for me, uh, AA is, so I, I listen, I've listened to two AA meetings online this morning. So definitely love Alcoholics Anonymous, but I needed something different. And so I joined Celebrate Recovery at a church close to me and it has made a huge difference. That's, that's when things completely changed is when I committed to a, a Christian program that worked with my values that I grew up with. And so we have a step study program. So there's uh, meetings on Thursday nights, just a general celebrate recovery second AA meeting on Thursday nights, but I joined a men's step study and there's 12 of us men every Monday for two hours, Monday nights, we uh, do homework every week and we come back in on Mondays and we're doing, working through the 12 steps together. Mm-hmm. So in Alcoholics Anonymous, you work the 12 steps with your sponsor. Well, this way you do it with a group. And so you're hearing other people's stuff on a weekly basis of what they're struggling with, what they're going through. 
And um, that adds extra motivation and encouragement for me. And then I get to add extra encouragement and motivation to other people. And so I was able to click and bond more closely with friends. I was able to get um, uh, deeper relationships and accountability in this program than I was with Alcoholics Anonymous. And so it has, that's, that's been the biggest thing in my um, recovery this last year has been celebrate recovery. I, I, I think that's huge. And you make a very good point and a point that we make often with our listeners. And that is that there is no one size fits all when it comes to treatment. I agree with you that you have the physical end. You also have the mental health issue, and then you have the spiritual health issue and all three of them come together and whatever program puts you in that place to where you can address all three successfully and come out the other end sober, that's what you do. And, yep. and you know, a lot of people have done the 12 step. Um, a lot of people have done, you know, different rehab programs, but the point is you have to address all three aspects of it, spiritual, mental, physical. Yes. And what I have found is once the spiritual is, once I have that con- consistent conscious contact with God of my understanding, then the physical and the emotional stuff start to be affected in a positive way. So I put on, I pride myself on being a really active person. Uh, I've done with my prosthetic leg, done triathlons, skydiving. And... I, triathlon. Okay, John. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, how? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, I pride myself on being, being an active person with a disability. And, but um, through COVID and my divorce, I mean, I was in my apartment with my blinds drawn. I didn't want to talk to anybody. didn't want to see anybody. I was yeah. just eating, 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 eating. Yeah. And I put on 35 pounds in a year. And I'm proud to say I've worked off 32 of it, but the weight, you know, as much as I wanted the weight to come off and I complained, complained about it. I'm like, I'm physically, I'm drained. I'm not, I don't have any energy, you know, all these negative effects of of filling myself with crappy food and the crap I put in my body. I was putting out crap, Mm -hmm. but once that spiritual connection was, was established in, in the 12 step program that worked for me, I've dropped 32 pounds in the last four and a half months. Um, And I put in a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. I've I've switched to a a keto diet and I work out six days a week. Um, and so that I think, I think it's amazing. And I think that your story is inspirational and I'm super excited that your plan is to go out and share your story more and more with people because, you know, you, you have overcome adversity and not just addiction, but many, many different things added on to that, whether it's the childhood operations or the horrific accident that you went through. And now the fact that you do, you know, you do triathlons. And I just think I'm, I'm super happy that you're going to get out there and start sharing your story in a very big way, because I think a lot of people need to hear it. I think that's huge. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, this go around, um, my ego is definitely more in check than it's ever been in the past. It was my story. Look at me, look what I overcame, but now it's like, dude, no, I, God has overcome my, you know, God is the reason I'm here today and I'm sober and I'm healthy. Um, you know, and, and it's the, I think the crux of of the message I want to send out to people is that you as an individual, you are the listener, you have control over, um, you have to take control of your situation. Somebody else isn't going to do it for you. You know, I expected a therapist to do it for me. I expected to go to treatment and have uh, 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 some kind of therapy from the outside of me change me on the inside. 
And I had to do the internal work. And so you can do the internal work. You can ask for help. You have to be your own advocate. You have to be the CEO of your wellness, you know, and, and it may not be, uh, so you may not be struggling with a drug or alcohol addiction, but you may be struggling with social media addiction, with shopping addiction, with food addiction, with sugar addiction. You know, there's all these other ways that it, that it comes out. And um, you've got to, you've got to step up and say, Hey, I want to make changes in my life. And I'm going to uh, search for resources to be able to help me do that because you can't, I found I can't do it on my own. Yep. I think, I think that's huge. And I think that, um, I think it's a very good point. You do have to be the CEO of your addiction, uh, of your treatment, of your, your um, recovery. I think that's a very good way to put it. So John, if someone listening wanted to have you come and speak, how do they do that? Yeah, so my website is not up yet, but it will be. It's going to be uh, johnmabry.org. Okay. J-O-H-N-M-A-B-R-Y. M-A-B is in boy, R-Y.org. Um, my social media is John Clint Mabry. Um, so in the, the meantime, they could reach out to you on Facebook. If yeah, social delivered. media. Okay. Yeah, yeah, John exactly. John Clint Mabry. Okay. Yeah, J-O-H-N-C-L-I-N-T-M-A-B-R-Y on okay. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, please reach out. Okay. Um, Great. Um, I'm excited about what you're going to do. I I think, and I'm excited about, um, you know, your story. And I will also, um, when I do the video of this interview, I'll put up a little blurb that says, you know, John Clint Mabry on Facebook, johnmabry.com. And yeah, I'm... Can I finish finish with one more quick story? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So as we talked about at the the first of our conversation that, uh, that... the biology, the genes, and the biology part of addiction and mental illness um, is a is a fraction of the bigger problem. So there's only a small, and this is again through Johan Hari's research. He traveled forty thousand miles around the world interviewing uh, specialists in in, uh, in anxiety, depression, and addiction. And what he found out was, um, it is. Hold on, I just lost my train of thought. Let me come back. There is only a small percentage of people that it's uh, solely biology which is brain changes and genes. There are seven other causes of scientifically proven causes of anxiety, depression, and addiction. And they are, I got it written down here, uh, meaningful values, a disconnection from meaningful values, from other people, from the natural world, from meaningful work, status and respect, childhood trauma, and a hopeful future. So, if you are out there struggling, I thought a medication was solely was going to fix me. And well, I was just going to say the one thing that will not fix any of those seven points is a drug. Exactly. It's not so going to do please, it. Please, please hear this. If you hear nothing else is that a medication by itself is not going to fix you. It can help you get through a tough time and, and antidepressants. I've was on them for 21 years and through celebrate recovery and my, in my work and connecting with my higher, my higher power, Jesus Christ, I've been, I'm often in depressants for five and a half months. Wow. And so, again, it is a necessary um, piece of the puzzle for a lot of people, but don't put solely put your reliance on a medication because there's seven other factors, meaningful work, status and respect, a hopeful future. There's these other uh, elements of lifestyle changes that you have the power to change um, if you want to that can help get you out of uh, out of a tough spot. I think that's great. And I would ask, John, if you would email me those seven points because I would like to um, reiterate them because Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, yeah, I think so often people think that a drug is the end all and it's just not. Yeah. At some point you have to take 
action on your own and fix your life. And I think that's what those seven points um, talk to, really. Yep. So and a medication, again, the medication may not be a pill. You may be using medication as sugar, as food, sex, dating apps, yeah. social media. So whatever. It's something yeah. that you need to be control over. You can't yep. substitute one addiction for another. That's never going to work for you. John, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really really appreciate it. It's a great story and I know it's going to resonate with people. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for the great work that you do. Please keep it up. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening today. I think John's story is quite a story. Um, I think I say that about a lot of the stories that we get, but there you go. They all are. And I think those seven points he made at the end of the interview are very, very relevant because while I don't, you know, diss anybody for believing that addiction is a brain disease, the problem that I have with that is that sometimes when someone thinks they have a disease, then they don't think that it's something they're control over. And those points that he brought up are definitely something that you or the person that you know who's addicted can take control of and can change. So thank you so much for listening. If you are addicted, please reach out. If you know someone who's addicted, please reach out. And we'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.